1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later is booked for murder. Your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other. You know, he did it, he didn't do it. It's been like going to a time portal every time. I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds to expend in 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state, it ruins your own life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life, is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. The first group of students, Miranda, Fariba, Morgan, and Rosalie, returned from Florida, where they spoke with people connected to the case, obtained critical documents, and amassed more questions than answers. What did you get from the trip that either will help advance our understanding of the case or the investigation, or what did you, what questions did it leave you with, or did it help you understand sort of what happened in a different way? And is there anything in particular we could follow up on? I mean, Davids is a good example of that. Brian Davids is the son of one of Tommy Ziegler's lawyers at trial. He has kept all of his father's case files, trial notes, and correspondence with Ziegler. But what else did you kind of draw from? I mean, you were the eyes and ears for several days down in the Orlando area. So what else did you glean from all that? I just felt in general that instead of feeling like I have more clarity after this trip, I just have like more questions. Mm. Like um, what? Like what kind of questions? Just the more I think, like, and I know it's not our job to like develop a theory or anything, but like the evidence that I've been reading, I mean, we like read all those documents at Brian David's house and like spoke to all these different people about what they remember and none of it is like adding up in any direction. I don't even feel like we're moving towards like a, you know, explanation or... Well, I think that's a good sign, actually. Okay, great. Because, um, <laughs> you know, as you dig up information, as you're unearthing things, I there's even more information that's now swirling around us, right? I mean, it does get more complicated, and it should. So I think it's okay if you feel, you know, to some degree overwhelmed by the information or not sure about the, you know, what it all means. I would only differ with you by saying that while a lot of that is confusing, there are certain things that we're beginning to understand a little bit better, or things that maybe are kind of emerging as contours, you know, maybe not full pictures, but I mean, you guys have done a lot of work on uh, Edward Williams and the connections there. I think that's certainly something that is worth pursuing. Um, I want to hear more about the blood spatter issue, the crime scene, um, 
the timelines. So there's, there's a lot going on, but I think it's okay if you, you just have to embrace some of that chaos right now. And um, I mean, you know, you're just, this is the first time we went down there. It's the first time we've talked to people. So you have to kind of expect that there's going to be a good amount of confusion. Actually, I would prefer you to, to be confused than to say, I, I know for sure what happened, because I'd be a little worried if you said that at this point. It's, it's a 40-year-old case. And we're not going to crack it in, in three weeks or three to four weeks, which is where we are right now. Just two days later, the second group of students board a plane and... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Orlando. The local time is 12.30. We will be taxiing for the next few minutes, so please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened and all items stowed until the seatbelt sign is turned off. After a three-hour delay, a reservation at a closed rental car company, and four hours of much-needed sleep, Raphael, Jackie, Hannah, and myself head over to the Winter Garden Heritage Museum. We scan archive maps of the region, noting the exact layout of the area back in 1975. And a couple of hours later, we're on our way to meet Tommy Ziegler himself. The two guards that walked us in, I think, were also like, what are you doing here? But the guard that ended up walking us out, he said that he sat through one of these interviews with Tommy like three or four times. So he was a lot more relaxed. And as we were leaving, he would he was explaining the different things about the prison, um, about death row, how he's been working there for 18 years, um, and then told us about, you know, it's a self-contained building, so their doctors and everything are in there, they never leave, but they get six hours of outdoor time a week. We walked, when he walked in, we were still setting up, kind of frantically, um, and then, you know, he was handcuffed, and so we didn't really know how to, it was kind of, like, do we, we didn't shake his hand, but then at the end, we actually did shake his hand. The guard said, anyone else on death row, he wouldn't really let do that for, but he said Ziegler basically wouldn't hurt a fly. I think what was really powerful about the interview, besides for hearing everything he had to say, was just kind of just getting this in person. I don't know, I feel like you read so much about Ziegler, and we've been reading about his case and talking about his case for so long, and then to actually just be face-to-face with him... He was funny, too. Like, he made us laugh throughout the interview. Um, And it was really great just to see his personality and to get a feel for what he's actually like as a person and his emotions. The interview was, like, at least an hour and a half, if not two hours. It it went on. They let us go for a while, and we started a little bit early. I think it, it was really helpful that it was because we were able to get kind of into the questions that Alec wanted us to ask about what we are potentially writing about. After the first hour, it, it was pretty comfortable. Like, our conversation felt more comfortable, so it was easier for us to ask straight up, like, did you commit this crime? Um, and how do you feel about being on death row in those questions and the death penalty in Florida? And I think he gave pretty good answers. He doesn't care that he's on death row. He just wants to prove that he didn't do these murders. I didn't expect to see a man with so much dignity about like what he thought had happened to him. You know, I, I, I expected to see someone who was beaten down by the criminal justice system. I expected to see someone who was scared of like the way things would turn out. Um, but I saw someone who was very confident and someone who was very proud about, um, you know, what they had to say about this case.
a life sentence is nothing in the world but a slow death sentence. And you look at me right now and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, my God, you've been here for 40 years. And that's not slow. Yes, it is. But I didn't do this. The next day, we met with Lynn Marie Carty, a private investigator who has devoted the past five years of her life to investigating the Ziegler case. She shares her greatest findings with us, explaining exactly how she came to be such a staunch supporter of Tommy Ziegler's innocence, and why she, like so many others, has kept up with this case after so many years. I know that professionally people are trained as investigators and law enforcement officers not to get emotionally involved in the case. Well, your average person, if you stopped 100 people on the street and said, could a man really be in a prison, in a jail, in a cage for 40 years with all of these appeals and he's innocent? If you ask the average person within the past 10 years before it's become more common knowledge lately, they would all say, oh, he's guilty, 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 guilty. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state it ruined your own life. And you say, who can I look up to? Who, who is the boss over this? Who cares over this? Who is the one that can make this right? I have to find that person today. I've spent the last five years trying to find that person. And that person doesn't exist in the state of Florida. Her sentiments echo that of Ziegler's defense team, who have submitted numerous appeals over the past 40 years. His latest post-conviction challenge involves a request for DNA testing. And this is what just is the most heartbreak. I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I live in the Sunshine State where they care about the tourists and they care about the flowers and they care about all the revenue and how beautiful it is here. This is something that I never knew either. I never knew that an injustice like this could exist. It has ruined every day. I can't go through one day without thinking about poor Tommy. And until it's made right, I have to keep fighting. Cardi and Tommy Ziegler's defense team continue to fight to clear his name. Here at the Medill Justice Project, students continue their search for the truth, for an understanding of the Ziegler case of Winter Garden on Christmas Eve, 1975.